You're listening to the Brand Builders Podcast with your hosts, Scott Dunstan and Brian Young. Welcome to another episode of the award-winning Brand Builders Podcast powered by the Dunstan Group. My name is Brian Young. We are here with the president of the Dunstan Group, Scott Dunstan, and we are here with Sam Fleming from 100 Gardens. Now, we talk about the environment. We talk a lot about, you know, our limited resources. How do we preserve them? Whether that's clean water, clean air, agriculture for our growing populations, all three conversations eventually come around to this, sustainability. How do we give back resources for the ones that we use? And our next guest on the Brand Butters podcast doesn't have all of the answers, but he has some really good ones when it comes to sustainable farming. Sam of 100 Gardens is a hydroponic farmer who grows two renewable foods that feed each other while they feed us. Yes, you heard that right. The foods feed each other and also feed people while teaching school children about horticulture, chemistry, agriculture, business, and fish. Yes, we said fish. Scott loves fish. Hmm. Now, it's called hydroponics, or in this case, aquaponics, and it's taking place uh, at a handful of local schools, including Myers Park, Garinger, West Charlotte, and Oakhurst. And Sam is here on this episode of the Brand Builders Podcast to tell us how it is done. Welcome, Sam. We are so excited to have you and learn more about this. What's up, y'all? Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for being here, bud. Great introduction, Brian. So, all right. So, Let's dumb this down a little bit. It's more than just throwing seeds in water and watching plants grow, right? Like, what is aquaponics and, and how does it work, essentially? Okay, so first of all, thanks again for having me. That was an awesome intro. I feel so special. Uh, <laughs> so aquaponics is um, raising edible freshwater fish and vegetables together in a symbiotic ecosystem. Basically, we raise fish in tanks and we feed them a fish food and then they create waste in the tank and then bacteria and microbes in the water break that waste down, converting it into plant nutrients. And then we have hydroponic plants, meaning plants growing without soil. They float on the water and they uptake those wastes created by the fish, cleaning the water to be returned back to the fish. So you have fish fertilizing plants and plants cleaning up the water for the fish. And then you get to reuse the water over and over and produce both those crops. So you're basically taking what naturally happens and now putting this basically into a tank and turning it into a food that we can eat. Tell us how big are these tanks? Like to me, I used to have a 55 gallon fish tank. So I don't know. I mean, that's a pretty big fish tank. I have to imagine these tanks are pretty big. Yeah. They kind of range. Um, The biggest uh system that we built uh up in massachusetts is twenty thousand gallons wow and then at our high school level those systems are two thousand gallons and then we also have systems in elementary and middle schools and those are 150 gallon tanks with a growing tray attached so how deep are they normally the tanks Uh, themselves the big tanks are about four feet deep they're they're circular tanks and then the ones we have at the lower school levels, those are the 150 gallon tanks are two feet tall and about four feet wide. So we don't get let the fish get too big uh, in those tanks. What kind of fish are you using? And does it matter which type of fish you have that maybe produces better waste than other fish? Great question. So we raise, you can only do freshwater fish. And then it also helps if they're domesticated. Uh, meaning that they can be grown in artificial environment without stress. And there's only a couple species for that. The first is tilapia, which is our 
main fish that we grow. And some of the other species that are common are channel catfish, hybrid striped bass, trout, and the new frontier is going to be Atlantic salmon. So that's the new, in the next 10 years, you're going to see a big advancement of Atlantic salmon production and aquaponic systems. So it's often been said, you, you mentioned Atlantic salmon, that if Atlantic is in front of the salmon, then it is not a, uh, a wild fish. Is that an old wives tale or is that true? That's pretty, that's pretty accurate. Um, most of the wild caught salmon are on the Pacific, um, Northwest, I think. And most Atlantic salmon, Atlantic salmon are the most farm raised salmon now. So, uh, if you're getting Atlantic salmon, it's probably farm. So is this always, or this technique, right? Is it free of chemicals and, and all those things that, that we worry about from farm raised fish these days? Yes. Um, so, well, it kind of depends on the farm, but generally aquaponics farms, you just can't use a lot of those um, products because they have adverse effects on the rest of the ecosystem, like the plants. So we can't use pesticides on plants because it kills fish and we can't use certain antibiotics on the fish um, because it affects the rest of the ecosystem. So um, we, I actually think, um, and we can get into this if you want to, but fish farming is the fastest growing sector in all of agriculture. Aquaponics is one method of fish farming, but 55% of the world's seafood is already farmed. So more than half, we've, we've crossed that point a couple of years ago, the halfway point. And a lot of this is because our oceans are in a dire state of collapse. We only have about 30 years left of um, fish, period, uh, given the trends that we're on. So. Uh, we're 30 years away from a complete collapse of nearly every major seafood species, swordfish, tuna, mahi-mahi. It's all going downhill because of overfishing, climate change, and pollution. So we didn't farm fish because it was easier. The reason that 55% of the world's seafood fa is farmed now is because we started running out of fish back in the 80s and 90s. So um, this uh, industry is exploding because of necessity. But also, think about it this way. If we started farming fish on even a bigger scale than every pound of fish we produced on land would be one pound of fish we did not have to extract from our oceans. We did that for seven to eight billion people. Um, then we this would be the biggest act of conservation that humanity's ever ever accomplished. We could save our oceans just by stopping the extraction and let these ecosystems rebound. That's where I think the magic of fish farming. That's that's the story that's never told that I think the public needs to hear is fish farming is how we're, how we're going to save our oceans. Why has that story never been out? And I'm, you know, I'm going to be ignorant to this because I, I did not know those statistics at all when it comes to <laughs> fish farming. Um, but it, you're basically saying this is the, the biggest thing that's, that's exploding and how we can, you know, really help our environment while also being able to feed each other, which is super, super important. Why is that not something that's mainstream? Why, when they talk about, you know, farming in general, they never talk about fish farming. I mean, at least I've never heard of it on the news at all. You're the first person that's told me. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think they're really bad at marketing, honestly. Uh, Bring them on the podcast. That's why we're the, here. The fish yeah. farmers in general? Or... Well, I think what it is is that um, it's a, I think it's partly a generational thing. People running fish farms are, are farmers. They're, they're older, generally. Sure. And I think that maybe – because the story that I just said, that probably doesn't impact 
older generations as much as it does young people. You know, we're growing up, we're going to have to live in this world. So young people are more passionate about this. And so I don't think the messaging has caught up and understands the, the new audience all that well. Because every time I tell that story, everybody goes, okay, you know, I support fish farming now. It's almost like, you know, you changed my mind in five minutes. So uh, <laughs> I think the industry well, that's alarming, though. I mean, understand, you know, I don't. So I don't know. I don't know how you market this stuff, really, because, I don't, you know. Maybe there's a national salmon association or something that needs a creative <laughs> consultant, but who knows? Well, you know, I, I'm a avid outdoorsman. I, I love to fish. I love to hunt. I love to, I love the whole process of it. Uh, you know, from basically the, the wilderness to the table and then distributing it to friends and that kind of thing. And I find that very satisfying. And, you know, there's, there's, tons of conservation uh, nonprofits, but there's also the fish and wildlife agencies in, in various states and then on a federal level. And, I, you know, I read the magazines that they send out, and I, I hadn't seen much on, on that within that realm either, you know, and uh, that's alarming, man. I'd, I've, I've never heard that we were that close to, to really screwing the whole thing up you know, as a society. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty scary. You can go to any of the, the fisheries websites, um, the national, the global fisheries data, all that stuff is pointing to it. Now, sure. it doesn't mean there's going to be zero fish, but it, what it means is effectively we're going to have 10 billion people on planet Earth. Right. So there won't be enough fish to go around for it not to be an absolute luxury item. Um, and many of those species could be extinct by then. Yeah. Um, so like bluefin tuna, has about eight years left is what the estimate is. Wow. That's insane. So uh, it's sad too, you know, it took 280 million years for that animal to evolve. And here we are in 150 years of industrial age, we will have wiped it out um, along with the other record <laughs> setting number of species that have been extincted in the last 150 years. Uh, you know, hundred years from now, they will look at this actually, if humans make it a thousand years from now, uh, this is this will be one known as one of the great extinctions of our time right. on the planet. That's wild. And we know it can recover if we do things the proper way. I mean, hell, they're introducing elk back to the Blue Ridge Mountains. I mean, we wiped those out centuries ago, right? Um, yeah. So it, yeah, it, we know we can fix it. We yeah. can fix it. So with that said, are there tons of lobbying or lobbyists or conservation funds hitting Washington? I mean, are our leaders aware of this issue and are they doing anything about it? And, and part of that question would also be, um, would your industry with the fish farming and things be subsidized uh, by them? Yeah, that's the tough part. Uh, I, I'm not a policy guy, so I can't really speak too much on what's happening on the, on the governmental level, but um, there are various industry associations that are trying to push the message forward and they do lobby some sure uh but you know what what is difficult is um it's really hard to get the price point for fish products down to compete with pork and cows and chickens that are subsidized mm -hmm. so that that is a major pain point for the industry right now so um i think we need some aquaculture guru to corrupt his way up into the high levels. Of <laughs> and trust well, me, well I totally said. understand that. And we are not going to take this conversation <laughs> yeah. political, but, but that's what it's going to take. 
you know, we need to be educated and, you know, again, not taking this political, but it seems like we're worried about a lot of things that, that aren't as important as, as topics like this, <laughs> you know, that's alarming. So, um, let's, let's go back. I'm sure Brian has a question, but let's go back to you and, and what you're doing, because I find it very interesting. You know, Brian, you mentioned, uh, a handful of local schools and, and things of that nature. And maybe it's the education piece that starts there that helps us move the needle, right, going forward. Um, yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about what you're doing there. So about 10 years ago, um, I was uh, – well, let me give you the kind of the background here. Uh, so 100 Gardens is a Charlotte 501c3. We've been around for about 10 years. And right now we have – aquaponics, active aquaponics programs in 16 schools and two prisons. And basically what we're trying to do is use aquaponics as a vehicle for teaching a whole new generation of people all the things that I've been explaining to you and how we actually solve them and how they can turn it into careers and how they make money. So what we do is we bring these aquaponics programs in the K-12 schools and the correctional facilities, and we have programs like curriculum where we tie in science and math and we can bring learning out of the classroom and into the aquaponics greenhouse and make it applied and then you give students the introduction to all this stuff and then as they advance into high school we have more uh, classes that are focused on aquaponics as a trade so we're helping students explore and understand that there are opportunities in this field and all sorts of other fields um dealing with environmental sustainability, feeding your community, you know, big hot button issues. Um, so uh, that's really what we're trying to do. We're called 100 Gardens because our goal is to get 100 programs going in the greater Charlotte area so that wow, that's awesome. uh, we can, yeah, I mean, the, think about these numbers. Uh, if we could get 200 students per school running through these programs and we had 100 of them, and there's like 150 schools in Charlotte or something. Uh, that would be 20,000 students a year. And in a decade, we could do 200,000 students, which is about a quarter of the population of Charlotte. So that would effectively be most of an entire generation of people that we could shift the thinking of. And then but when the time 2050 comes around, we will have established a precedent. And Charlotte would be known worldwide as a city who really was advancing this kind of thinking and had changed um, a lot of the practices that we have and kind of inspired everybody else to, to follow suit. So that's kind of the big goal is to build a critical mass here and have the next generation of Charlatans being, you know, the most enlightened they can be. I love that. Yeah, that's incredible. And that's yeah, really awesome. why we started this podcast to share light to stories and brands just like this. I'm going to throw a, a stat out there. You locally, the first uh, school or first juvenile corrections facility was Stonewall Jackson. And that program was so successful, the cafeteria man manager won Best Practices Award from the USDA for producing 55 heads of lettuce per week. Th I mean, just put that number out there. If you can do that in one facility, and now we can do that in 100 schools, that is a lot of food. I mean, go into your fridge and pull out a, a head of lettuce. 
that is not just a couple of leaves, all right? Like that's a lot of food that can feed a lot of different people. Were you surprised at and not only how successful that was, but is this kind of the norm of the success rate when you're putting these programs in to these different schools and these different juvenile corrections facilities? From a food production standpoint, that's that's really normal. And it's actually gotten a lot better than that now um, as we've kind of refined what we do. You know, one of the things we learned early on is that even though the systems are kind of complicated, um, and this goes, this is plays into the bigger kind of philosophy about how we teach. I went to CMS, I graduated CMS, uh, Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools, and I was never a very good student and I tried really hard, but I was like B's and C's student and I was giving it a a lot of effort. And it was because I wasn't connecting things to like the real world. And so what we learned early on when we started teaching at Stonewall Jackson, which has been renamed Cabarrus Youth Development Center for good reasons. Um, When we started teaching there, we didn't even have a curriculum. Uh, It was crazy how we even got got the contract, but uh, we didn't have a curriculum and we just started teaching students how to run the system. And it was as visceral as that. And we learned really quickly that no matter what their educational level was, they could perform all the tasks, even if they had no background in it. So, you know, had to record water temperature and had a data log that you don't have to know a lot about science to do that, had to record pH and, and make pH adjustments within the system. We could teach that to people who had third grade education. Uh, and so we started learning that no matter what their background was, they could run the system. And so it made us start to realize that no matter who we're going to work with and what schools we work with, we make food production really the number one uh, thing that we train people on at first. And that builds their confidence immediately. And now they're running aquaponic systems and growing food. And then what you do is then when the curriculum, those uh, connection points start to happen over the course of the year, they fully understand it at that point. So we actually start with the doing and then back it up with the academics and the curriculum rather than the other way around that you see sometimes if you ever see any hands-on at all because you know most schools aren't designed for this kind of teaching so that's why they have to partner with us to come in and help them do it yeah i love that i mean i look back on on when i grew up i was very similar like i'm not a test taker like i wasn't somebody that could just sit in a chair and you lecture me and then me be like cool give me 50 questions on this let's crush it (laughs) right but i do remember as a kid all the things that we did that were were actual like real life experiences or things that could be be done outside, whether it's raising baby chickens, whether it's having fish in, in a science room, whether it's growing your own plants. Like those are things that literally a very vivid memory, not only of how we did it, but I can apply that to creating my own garden, creating my own fish tank. I don't raise chickens, but I could, <laughs> you know, like so that's kind of I love that you said that because I think certain kids, you can't teach everybody the same way. And not only have you created curriculum, but now you're giving them an opportunity to go into an industry, which if all of the facts that you're saying are going to come true, this could be something that not only puts Charlotte on the world map, but gives a lot of people in this area a lot of opportunity to be very, very successful. You should be really, really proud of that. I want to talk about the hardest part of your job, not only running the greenhouses, but how is this something that me and Scott could do in our backyard? Like how, how easy is it? How hard is it? And, and how hands-on are you throughout that process? Are you in, in regards to like doing this at your house? 
Sure. I mean, I live on an acre in South Charlotte. My wife would love to have an aquaponics farm in the backyard. <laughs> well, yeah. Is is that even feasible? And you know, yeah, I'm just curious. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, it is actually. Um, I have a friend out in Phoenix who uh, the documentary came and they did a little episode on his backyard aquaponics system in the desert, and it has 6.2 million views. Wow, <laughs> like, man, that's cool. On. It just like exploded. But yeah, backyard aquaponics is a thing. It's been a thing since like the early 2000s, but it mostly exploded in Australia when they <clears throat> put limits on water use. And since it recycles water, it became really popular. But um, yeah, back, backyard aquaponics is possible. You're going to be looking at at least thousand bucks to set something up. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's going to take on a minimum about a four foot by eight foot area. It's going to be a sizable little garden because um, you just have to have a minimum size fish tank outdoors to prevent like these crazy temperature swings um, that are due to seasonality. So uh, if you're ever interested in seeing one, we have one set up at Canvas Tattoo uh, on North Davidson Street. So canvas tattoo and art gallery. We have a backyard aquaponics system set up there. That's awesome. Really, really cool. What do you have in there? Is that a tilapia system? Uh, we actually have koi in that one because nice. yeah. the, the people get the koi tattoos. So nice. uh, we have koi fish in there and then we grow vegetables on top. And they have like movie nights and stuff during the summer where they have it's like a drive-in movie theater kind of thing. But you just go in their big backyard. They got a big screen. Uh, and so we will like harvest food and like prepare it and then talk about it during the movie nights and stuff so hopefully that'll happen here pretty soon that's really that's cool. incredible so you have something that you work with called the innovation barn uh, what is your innovation barn so innovation barn is a partnership between the city of charlotte and envision charlotte which is a nonprofit. and several years ago they went to amsterdam to and Spain, I think, to explore what circular economies are. And they took Charlotte leaders uh, and Envision Charlotte was um, spearheading this. And they went and learned all about how Europe is turning cities into circular economies, which are essentially zero waste and much more sustainable. And then they had a group from Amsterdam called Metabolic come back to the United States and they came to Charlotte and they did a feasibility study on whether or not Charlotte could become zero waste. And they said, if you do these, this long list of things, you could become a circular economy, become the first zero waste city in America. And Charlotte said, okay, let's do it. So part of the 2040 plan, another marketing uh, miss, miss opportunity here is that no one even knows about this. And I'm like, dude, like, Charlotte's been struggling for identity for so long. You decide you want to become the first zero waste city in America and you're not even telling everybody about it. <laughs> right? like this could be what you brand your whole damn city on. Right. Uh, and so basically the innovation barn is the first step to helping sell the message to Charlotte. So um, it is a living lab for the circular economy and every tenant is using the waste products from each other's um uh, business to power their own business. So we're playing the agriculture piece in the barn. We run an aquaponics vertical farm, and then that food gets used in the teaching kitchen and people learn how to cook with this new sustainable equipment. 
And then the food waste goes to a food waste composting place run by Crown Town Compost in the back. And then they grow these maggots, these soldier fly larvae, and those maggots then get fed back to our fish to start the loop over. And so then the whole cycle, you can see it. So there's all these different industries in the building and we're displaying circularity and we're going to be using it as a discovery place of sorts once it gets fully developed and bringing schools through. We're already bringing corporate leadership groups through, green teams. Um, And then there's a tap room called Repor that's open Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And so you can get local beers there and then um, explore the place in sort of a loose format right now. And where is that located? It is on Siegel Avenue. It's right outside of downtown. It's right beside Charlotte uh, Waste, uh, Solid Waste. That's awesome. First I've heard of it. <laughs> to your point. Yeah, for somebody that made B's and C's, you're, you're one smart fellow. <laughs> I'll tell you that. You, I want to talk about sustainability, but I want to talk about financial sustainability. And in while 100 Gardens is a nonprofit, uh, what makes your nonprofit financially sustainable? Uh, right now, it's a bunch of people who are uh, too, we're too nice. <laughs> <laughs> we do a lot of work and we don't get paid as much as we should, but that's a different discussion. Yeah. Uh, change because we're we're you know we're we're in demand now so we it is becoming more financially sustainable but it took us four years before we started really making enough money to pay anybody um so what we've done that's unique in the nonprofit space is we most of our money is generated on our contracts with schools and these other institutions like prisons and so we're what we call a fee-for-service nonprofit, and we get we earn most of our money through our contracts. And then the schools that want programs that we can't that can't afford it, that's where we fundraise and we subsidize those programs. So we're kind of we're not really like beholden to big grants and things like that for survival, because we operate more similar to a for-profit with our contracts. And then we also to bring value to the schools, we help our high schools partner with restaurants and other people who purchase the produce. And then they open an account and the produce brings back money to the program. So they pay us to do professional development for teachers, to help facilitate a program, to be there a couple of times a month, work with students and deliver activities, uh, provide tech support. So we get paid for that. And then we bring back per high school between seven and eleven thousand dollars a year in produce sales and the students are running these businesses so they're learning sustainability through the eyes of you know um how to make money and so right now we're partnered with mariposa which is a restaurant at the mint museum downtown we partner with something classic which is a catering company you'll see our salads and harris teeters that's coming from many of our high schools um and then we just recently partnered with the UNCC Marriott, the Golden Owl Tavern is what it's called, the UNCC, and then the Center City Marriott downtown. So those are the restaurants that we sell to right now. I love it, man. I got married Very at the Mint cool. Museum, and something classic was my caterer. So I feel like I'm supporting this. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little awesome. bit. But- is there will be a 100 garden salad on the see, menu. That's, see, that's really cool. And I, I mean, I think you have, have created something that is very, very important that needs to be the message. I'm glad we have you on this podcast to share more about it because 
I just think this is something that you, you mentioned has not been marketed correctly, right? Not a lot of people are talking about it. And I'm going to use an example and, and I want to see if there's any correlation here. If you think there could be the growth the same way you look at like the hemp or the CBD market, right? How quickly that took over now, completely different, but also somewhat the same from a farming standpoint and how many uses you can use hemp for, for a lot of different reasons. Do you think this is something that you're right there? Like, can we get a couple more stories out there? Can we have more people talking about it? Do you feel that you're close to making this something that not only people in Charlotte understand and know about, but really something that we can grow from here throughout the country? And and what do you need from people in the community, people in this country to be able to make that a reality? So that's a loaded question. Uh, <laughs> True. Uh, <laughs> But I like it. Um, so <laughs> I want to preface this by saying, you know, when I talked about the, the city having poor marketing and stuff like that, I say it with love. Um, and I don't say it with me having all the right answers either, because um, as much as I think I'm creative with this stuff, a lot of people still don't know who 100 Gardens is. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's work to be done uh, on my end. And then so I don't really have answers for how we take this really a whole lot farther um basically what i'm trying to do is make sure that i keep the work going and keep it better and expanding it or keep making it better and expanding it and then um trying to use social media to advance it a little bit so i've become a tiktok creator lately which has been weird (laughs) but uh it's gotten me a lot farther than anything else has so that's cool yeah um and then, but I think on the bigger scale, um, I don't really know how to push the message out except for continuing to do the work. And I think if you do the work and you're trying to make the right connections, then the message will get elevated more and more. Um, but I do think at some point, like something like this has to be adopted by everybody and that's the scary thing about this because i feel like you need like a leader a national leader who can rally people behind this concept but believe it or not the stuff that we all agree on right now is pretty controversial um i've never heard anybody say that we shouldn't have hands-on learning in schools everybody agrees with that that's all good but you know some people will tell me no oceans aren't collapsing you know that's a that's a hoax or or climate change isn't a real thing, or, you know, um, we don't need to grow food for other people. I mean, there's, these things are not widely accepted. So I don't, um, I don't really know where we go from there. Uh, I just feel like by doing the work and hopefully supporting other people who are doing similar work, then that changes minds in a more authentic and organic way. Um, But I don't know how we rally the troops on a, on a big massive scale. I think you, I think you nailed it. It's you're doing the work. You're teaching the young generations about it. You're getting, you know, them hands on to understand not only how cool it is from a science standpoint, but how you can literally support your community. And I mentioned this a lot, you know, I'm never somebody that cares why somebody thinks the way they do, but I want to know how they got to that conclusion. Right. And you mentioned a lot of things from, 
you know, certain people that mention that our oceans aren't going away and, you know, we don't need to be environmentally, you know, conscious or whatever. But the reality of it is, is that if somebody has facts around that, you need to be open to understanding why they feel that way. And I think it's through action and that's what you're doing. Right. And, and people like ourselves that can have you on that podcast. And I hope all of our listeners will go check out, you know, a hundred gardens, go follow you on, on TikTok If you got TikTok or Instagram, hope you have Instagram too. Cause I don't have TikTok, but we'll get you on Instagram. But I think that's how you're going to do it, right? Raising, you know, the young generations. If you can have 200,000 students in Charlotte Mecklenburg that understand what this is, it's a lot easier to sell that. And look, life is short in 10 years. Those people are going to be, you know, 25 years old, right? They're going to be making decisions. They're going to be having jobs. They're going to be paying bills for the first time. They're going to be buying their own food. And so hopefully it's, this is going to be a long runway for you, but look, it had to start somewhere. And clearly you've done a great job of doing that. No, thanks. <laughs> you're welcome. Hey, you got this. I want to jump real quick because you're the lead organizer of Homegrown Tomato Festival. And I just want to know what the Homegrown Tomato Festival is because I've now learned about 100 Gardens and Homegrown Tomato Festival, and I didn't know about either of them. Okay. So this is our big yearly fundraiser. Uh, it's going to be July 23rd this year. And um, it's going to be a CPCC downtown. The... Um, what we do is we get up to 20 tomato growers, backyard tomato growers, to enter into a tomato growing competition. And they grow tomatoes all season. And then they show up to the festival with 10 pounds of tomatoes for various categories. And they some of them go to get blind taste tested by celebrity chefs before the festival. And then all the contestants set up the rest of their tomatoes, slice and like in presentation format, uh, and a whole bunch of booths and you come into the tomato festival as an attendee you come in you get a free tomato sandwich made with duke's mayo and homegrown tomatoes and then you get voting tickets and you go around and you sample dozens and dozens and dozens of different types of tomatoes and you vote for your favorite and you get to talk to the people who grew them and talk shop and just have a good time then we have a tomato cocktail competition that's very similar to that so you get to walk around and try all these different tomato themed cocktails and vote for that or food competition that runs the same way. And then we'll have a big aquaponics exhibit run by students in our program that take people through the kind of work we're doing. Um, and it's all um, fundraiser for our mission. Do you have to buy tickets to that or, or is this just you can just show up? You can yeah, buy, tickets, buy tickets go on sale in May. Awesome. That yeah. is that's very cool. Yeah, that is really cool. It's right up my alley. It, is this good for all, it, for all kids? It's weird. Kids event? Like yeah, kids come? It's weird, man. <laughs> because, like, when we've never really known what we were doing when we started doing things. We've always learned as we went. So, like, five years ago, we were like, we need a, uh, you know, people were saying you need, like, a nonprofit event, like a gala or something to raise money. And we don't, that's not really our style. So, I was driving through South Carolina and saw like they had things for a watermelon festival. And so I just looked up, are people doing tomato festivals? No one's doing them except in like Spain. So we threw our first one thinking like a hundred people would show up and like 600 people showed up. Wow. And then every year it's just gotten bigger and bigger. So we expect probably 1500 this year. That's all. Is it good for kids of all ages? I've, I have really young kids, but I think this would be fun. Yeah. It's really fun. Yeah, awesome. kids will love it. Dude, that's so cool. Well, 
Um, this has been awesome. I've learned a lot. I want to dive into it and learn more. Um, I hope to, to meet you in person. But before we, we wrap this up, what's the best way for our audience to get in touch with you, to follow the story, and ultimately, you know, if they have the means to be able to, to give back, whether that's through a donation or volunteering their time? Okay, a couple ways to help. Um, if you are a part of a corporate leadership team or a green team, we do experiences at the Innovation Barn. We can bring you through and serve you lunch. You'll actually cook your own lunch using ingredients that you've harvested in the barn cool. and then learn about sustainability. We can book you for an event like that. And then you can make a donation to our organization with your budget from your green team. Uh, another thing is if you go to 100gardens.org, you can uh, contact us to volunteer at a, at a greenhouse or the Innovation Barn. And you can make a donation from the website. Um, if you want to follow like the most up-to-date um, stuff, you can follow our Facebook page, which is 100 Gardens, or Facebook slash 100 Gardens. And then if you're on TikTok, you can follow me, and you'll get the most in-depth and <laughs> uh, in all the proceeds I, I push back into 100 Gardens. But uh, I'm Dude Grows Fish on TikTok. Great. I have 100... 20,000 followers. That a boy. And, that's awesome. Dude grows fish. That's fantastic. What a <laughs> hell of an audience. And I, yeah, that's basically awesome, I, I, just, I take people through and I teach people aquaponics on a really visceral level. And I take you through our school programs. I talk to students about what they're learning. And it's really just like a day in the life of 100 Gardens. So um, I found that to be our one of our most effective means of communication. Um, and also, if you Google Berkshire, B-E-R-K-S-H-I-R-E, -E, aquaponics, you'll see the latest installation we did for the Massachusetts Department of Corrections. It's the largest aquaponics facility in a prison in North America. And um, they're doing some really great stuff. There's a video where they talk to inmates about what they're learning. So if you really, if, if you want to learn more, Google Berkshire aquaponics, and it'll take you to a couple articles. But um yeah, I really appreciate being on here and um, don't feel uh, scared to shoot me an email. Um, I can meet you at a garden sometime and show you around. I would love show to check show. that out. I'll throw another too. one on there. Connect with them on LinkedIn. Uh, one of the featured links on there is he actually did a TED talk and everybody in, in our audience should know what that is. And it's aquaponics and a new way of thinking. I'm sure that would be a, an awesome uh, video to watch. But Sam, this is incredible stuff, man. Um, I, I'm on a, I'm, I'm embarrassed. I didn't know about it before, but I'm excited to learn more, to share this story. I would love to, to take, you know, my family and my kids, um, out to a farm soon. Definitely. We'll connect with you, uh, and look forward to meeting you, but this is really amazing. I say this a lot, but this is why we started our podcast to, to share the light of stories like this in our city, because there's so many cool things happening. And Sam, you are definitely one of those stories. <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. It means a lot. Um, and I can't wait to share this podcast out. Yeah, that was really cool, man. Thank you. Love we it. appreciate it. Keep doing the great work. That's right. Everybody, go connect with Sam. If you're on TikTok, Dude Grows Fish. I really didn't think Dude Grows Fish would be the reason I download TikTok, but it <laughs> might have just happened, everybody. It might have just happened. Um, thank you so much for joining us. We will share all these links. Uh, and remember, July 23rd, um, the, uh, the Tomato Festival. 
please go check that out. The Homegrown Tomato Festival right here in Charlotte. Sam, keep up the great work with 100 Gardens. I think this is just the beginning, and this was a fascinating podcast. I learned so much in this. I really do appreciate it. All right, y'all. See you next time. Thank you, Sam. Until next time, you've been listening to this episode of the Brand Builders Podcast. You've been listening to the Brand Builders Podcast, brought to you by the Dunstan Group with your host, Scott Dunstan and Brian Young. For branded merchandise and apparel that makes first impressions and ones that last, check out the Dunstan Group at dunstangroup.com.